0: Uh, So John Newton, we've talked about John Newton before, famous hymn writer and and pastor. Um, He was friends with another guy named William Cooper. And these two guys were in ministry uh, and they wrote hymns. Both of them wrote a a number of hymns and they wrote hymns together. And at one point they were uh, producing a book of hymns. And in the preface to that book, they write that this was going to be a, a testimony to their friendship, that they were working on this project together. But before they finished it, Cooper famously became mentally ill. He became insane and was not able to recover. And so Newton almost gave up on the project. He said that God seemed to go out of his way to make it more difficult for them to finish this book of hymns. Um, He did finish it, but he said that God seemed to cross all of his fair designs that he had schemed were his words uh, so that he wouldn't finish this project. And if he didn't finish it, we wouldn't have hymns like Amazing Grace and um, There's a Fountain and all these other things. So they finished the project, or he did. But through this process, he, he prayed and begged God, why? Why did God allow his friend to go through something like this? When they were in the middle of what they considered to be a really good work. He wrote the hymn, I Ask the Lord. In the middle of this process, I asked the Lord that I might grow. To talk about what it looks like to trust God's good work amidst the real struggles in life. It's a song that we sing in RUF. Um, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and in every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And then throughout this hymn, God takes Newton on this sort of roller coaster ride of emotions. He, He begins to wrestle with his own sin. He wrestles with his own shame and despair. His own hopelessness. And then in the last few verses, I want to read the last couple of verses. Newton writes, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent... To aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this this way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer for grace and faith. And these are the final words of that hymn. This is sort of the voice of God. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. It's a really important line that thou may seek thy all in me. There's two conflicting narratives here at the end of Jonah. It's the narrative of what Jonah wanted God to do. And the narrative of what God wants God to do. And at times these are conflicting narratives even in our own lives, right? What we want God to do. And what God himself is intent to do in our lives. We may say we want to grow, but what we might actually want is something more like what Jonah wants. And so I want to get into this passage and and think about it in those two ways. What are some things that Jonah wants and what are some things that God intends? And then we'll kind of try to apply it to ourselves at the end. So first, what is it that Jonah wants? Jonah wants three things. Very briefly, I'm going to go through this. He wants destruction for his enemies, comfort for himself, and then he wants to die. Those are the three things he wants there in the text, right? So he wants destruction for his enemies. I I know we've dealt with this plenty of times before if you've been with us. But Jonah just can't shake it. He keeps bringing it up. Verse 5 says that Jonah goes and he makes a shelter for himself outside of the city. Now, this would have been a shelter he made of like mud or something and shrubbery. Not a very good shelter, but good enough working with what he had. But why? Well, why did he make a shelter? Because he wanted to sit as if he were a spectator at Nineveh's downfall. That's what he was hoping for. He was hoping that maybe God would change his mind and he would just sit outside of the city, kind of cross his arms and just like wait and hope that God would destroy Nineveh. God doesn't do that. Spoiler alert. He doesn't destroy Nineveh. Instead, he destroys Jonah's idea of justice. If you've been sitting at all through uh, some of our messages in Jonah and you think, I'm so glad I don't hate anyone like Jonah does. Uh, let me ask you, have you ever been on the road where um, you get passed by a car and they kind of cut you off? Oh, you're already there. Uh, <laughs> they sort of cut you off and then they just speed on. You ever had that thought? I really wish there were a cop just around that curve that would just pull them and be like, justice, where's justice? Or have you ever had that thought where I, I just wish they would run off the road just a little bit, like not, not like have a bad wreck, but like bad enough that it just messes up their car a little bit. They're safe, but they kind of end up in a ditch and that way you can roll, ride by and go a little slower, roll down your window and say, hey. <laughs> just me? It's just me? Okay. That's sort of what Jonah's feeling about Nineveh. We feel that about a lot of different people in our life. We call it road rage, but it's not just road rage, right? It's also class rage, class rage. It's also friend rage, jealousy rage, whatever rage you want to put with it. We feel that sort of thing toward people who seem to get away with it when we don't, who seem to get everything when we don't. There are plenty of people that we sort of kind of wish, if we're honest, their lives would fall apart just for a minute. So I'd feel a little bit better about mine. may just be me, but maybe you're there too. And if we think about God's grace for them, it sort of drives us crazy. And so you can kind of get why Jonah wants to build a mud hut and watch and hope that it sort of falls apart. That's what he wants. He wants destruction for his enemies, but he also wants comfort for himself. It's interesting to me that God comes alongside Jonah in his anger for a little bit. Again, he doesn't run away. He's not done with Jonah even yet. Still, he's not done with Jonah. He's still there, still talking to him. And even in this temper tantrum, God still comes alongside Jonah and he gives him this shade booth of a plant. Now, it's amazing the, the plant grows scholars debate. What kind of plant could grow that quickly? Regardless, God grew a plant. And it came and it assisted the mud hut that he built and made it better. So you look at that and you're like, well, that's very kind of God to provide a better shade than even Jonah himself could have constructed. And sometimes God gives us exactly what we want. And then sometimes he takes it away. Which is what he does right after this. Now, the Lord appointed a plant. And it made him come up over Jonah, was a shade for his head, to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was really glad about the plant. Jonah was concerned about Jonah's comfort. And God seemed to lean into that and let him be comfortable for a time. Jonah only wanted comfort, though, to be protected from the difficult things in life. God allowed him to experience comfort because he had a lesson for him to learn about his comfort. He wanted to actually save him from it. You see, our comfort can actually be our own undoing. Our comfort can quickly become an idol. It can become our whole purpose. Comfort may be the reason that you've picked the major that you've picked because you think that's going to lead to the comfortable life that you've always hoped to have, right? Comfort can drive so much of what we do, so much of what we avoid, the people that we avoid, the hard conversations that we avoid, The hard places of ministry that we avoid. The hard places in our lives that we avoid. Comfort can really be an idol. And we just settle for the typical paycheck, the standard marriage, the 2.5 kids, the big TV, the nice car, the good garage that shuts as soon as I pull into it. And we kind of settle into our very comfortable existence. But is it possible that God has something so much more for you than comfort? I think that's what he's telling Jonah. This is actually really frightening. It's a scary thought to lean into for a minute. God loves Jonah so much that he takes his comfort away. Because he wants something more from Jonah. Because right after he gets comfortable with his shade, the same God who appointed the plant, follow the wording, did you hear it multiple times? The God who appointed the plant, then appointed a worm to eat the plant. And then he appointed a wind and the sun to beam down on Jonah and actually make him miserable. The word appointed is used four times in the book of Jonah. Three of them are right here. The other time is when God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. You've got to see that God is sovereign over Jonah's circumstances all along the way. He's sovereign over the good things that are happening. And he's even sovereign over the hard things that are happening in the story. Something just spilled behind me. Oh, okay. That's all it was. Got a sovereign over a backpack spilling in the middle of a message. It's true. He appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. He appointed an east wind, and it withered away. 'Tis in this way the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. So Jonah wanted destruction. He wanted comfort, and thirdly, he wanted to die. He after all of these things failed. When Nineveh was not destroyed, when he didn't get everything that he wanted, he just says, I want it all to end. It's better for me to die than to live. But God doesn't want Jonah to die. He wants Jonah to live and he doesn't want him to just exist in his comfort. He wants to give him a life worth living. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says that God is like a careful surgeon and his intentions are solely good. And he must cut in order to bring healing. He must cut in order to bring healing. And Lewis says the kinder he is, the more relentlessly he will go on cutting. In other words, God knows exactly the diseases that you and I suffer from. And he will cut in individual ways in order to bring about deep healing. It's a scary message. Perhaps where he needs to do surgery in your life is in the area of relationships. Where God may cut out some things in order to do some healing. Or in your academics. Or maybe it's in your sense of kind of self-rightness or self-righteousness or pride. Where do you see God cutting? I, I wonder if you have an answer to that actually. That you see God maybe at work in this area. Because it's gotten really difficult and I'm having to go through some hard things with it. You need to know that God works only in order to heal. He takes away only in order for you to have what you need above anything else. And that's Him. That's him. So to save Jonah from his anger, from his hatred, from his comfort, to even save him from death, God offers Jonah something else. And so here's what God offers Jonah. He offers him compassion. He offers him purpose. And he offers him life to answer the three things that Jonah wants. This has been a theme from the very beginning, but God makes it abundantly clear now with this sort of like divine mic drop at the end of chapter four, where God is very clear that he has compassion for Nineveh, for his enemies. I want to read that last part again, 9 through 11. When he said, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, do you pity the plant for which you did not labor? Nor did you make it grow, came into being at night and perished in a night. Why should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also cows. It ends with cows. The book of Jonah ends with the word cattle. So God confronts his prodigal self-righteous prophet. And he says, so you pity the plant that you didn't do anything to make grow. Yet you have no pity for all of these people who do not know their right hand from their left. This is like an old idiom that basically means they're spiritually ignorant, they're lost. And he says, You pity a plant, but Jonah, you don't pity people. In other words, God's saying that's messed up. God has compassion for Nineveh, the great city. That's astounding to us because if you remember in our study, if you were here, how we described the Assyrians. They were brutal. They're terrorist. They're unjust, awful, awful people. Yet God has compassion for them. He sees them as Jesus sees the crowd in Matthew 9, where he says he sees them as harassed and helpless, like shepherdless sheep. And he says Jesus has compassion on them. God has compassion on the Ninevites. In other words, what When we see helplessness, God sees a way. When we see hopelessness, God sees a plan. And when we see worthlessness, God sees beauty. And he has compassion even on his enemies. God offers compassion to Nineveh and he offers it to Jonah. And all along the way, God has been offering to Jonah something that he has just not been able to accept. And it's this. It's, it's a purpose. It's a mission. From the very beginning of the story, God has been inviting Jonah to be a part of the greatest mission the world has ever known. And he just refused. Yes, he reluctantly ended up going, but then he hated what happened when he preached this message. God's been offering him this opportunity to carry the message of God's mercy to a lost and dying world. And Jonah hated his mission. God is offering purpose because comfort will come and go. But purpose can carry you through even the uncomfortable seasons. And with this purpose, I think God is offering Jonah a reason to live, to know that his life isn't just about him. God has given him something so much bigger than himself to live for, to fight for, to make God's name known across the earth. And then the story just just ends. That's that. Sort of odd, right? Like we, we just wonder what became of Jonah. Does he ever get it? Does he turn the corner? Does he repent? Maybe does he become like best friends and roommates with some Ninevites and like they work it out? I don't know. We don't know. God hasn't told us. Some scholars, though, suggest that we might have an idea of what happened to Jonah. Let me illustrate it this way. Last week, our oldest daughter was in this little play that she takes. She takes classes at the Clemson Little Theater. And they do these drama camps for like five weeks at a time. And it's really cute. So she was in there with five other little eight-year-olds, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And, uh, and so they come up with this play, and they're given a script, and they're all given little parts. And, and then on the fifth week, they do a performance for the parents. And so we were there last Monday night. Uh, and by the way, Lucy, who was in this play, gave me this illustration. She, like, thought of this. She was like, this is really good for what you're talking about. So this is – she's dead on. You ready? So here's what happened. They are in this play last Monday. The setting of the play was that there were these um, five girls who were going on a camping trip. And they were going camping. They had their pajamas on. And they were carrying little backpacks and stuff, and they had pretend tents on the stage. And then there was this one girl who was the narrator of the story. And so she was kind of reading what was happening to the five girls who were on the stage. And the narrators off to the side of the stage. So we're watching this unfold, and they're going back and forth. They go into their tents. They set up their sleeping bags. They come back out and do the campfire. They go into their tents. Then they go on a hike. and then, So it's just kind of this back and forth of what they're doing on the camping trip. But every time, here's the, the conflict of the story. Every time they go back into their tents, something's different. something's moved and changed every time they walk back into their tent then they walk back out and they kind of figure out what's going on uh, or they don't figure out what's going on and they're like who's messing with our stuff in the end i'm gonna just fast forward spoiler alert in case you ever see this play in the future coming to (laughs) off broadway uh the year 2027 here's what happens in the end toward the end of the story the narrator as she's telling the story and the girls are off on a hike she moves to the center of the stage And as she's telling the story, she sits down in the tent and she starts messing with the stuff. And they all come back from their hike or whatever. And they come back on the stage and they're like, and they call her narrator. What are you doing in the tents? And she said, I wanted to go on the trip, too. And there she was in the middle of the tent. The narrator, get this, writes herself into the story. What happened to Jonah? Well, some scholars suggest that the only reason we know anything about Jonah is because he's the one telling the story. It's interesting to think about. We don't have evidence of this. God doesn't tell us exactly, but it makes sense in some ways. How else would we know about God, the personal conversations Jonah had with God? You know, how else will we know about this prayer from inside the belly of the fish? But... If Jonah's the one telling the story, it's so interesting because he is not the hero. He's not the hero of the story. I think it would take an amazing amount of humility and understanding of grace to tell this story about yourself. He tells himself, he tells the story of himself as a reluctant prophet who had a lot to learn. But even though Jonah may be the one telling the story, it's never really been about him from the beginning. Each week I've tried to make a connection to how this story points us to a greater prophet who has to come, a greater Jonah. And we see that even tonight. You see, Jonah, he failed in his mission. He hated his enemy and he ran from his call. And even once he sort of powdered his way into Nineveh and preached the message and they repented, he still waits to see if God will eventually kill them off. But there's a better prophet of God who would soon come along and he would not fail in his mission. He would not hate his enemies or run from his call. He would leave his home. He would leave behind his comfort. He would have compassion on those who hated him. Jesus Christ is the true and better prophet. He's the true and better Jonah. And Jesus is the one who's written himself into the story of our lives. Not just on the side telling the story, but he's right in the middle of it. To quote Russell Whitfield once more, he said that, Jesus, no, Jonah recoils at the redemption of sinners, but Jesus rejoices in the redemption of sinners. Jonah asked that he might die because he loathed the salvation of his enemies. But Jesus asked that he might die because he loved the salvation of his enemies. Jonah was angry enough to die, but Jesus was loving enough to die. And as Jonah went outside the city to await its destruction, Jesus goes outside of the city to hang on the cross to absorb our destruction. Isn't that beautiful? This story is not about Jonah at all. It's about Jesus, even himself, who said there's something greater than Jonah here. Jesus has inserted himself into the story, into the story in order to have a relationship with you. So the question for us tonight is not so much what happened to Jonah. The question really is what's going to happen to you? How are you going to respond to God's question of compassion? Do we pity plants more than people? Do we care more about our own comfort than God's purpose? Do we see God's compassion and do we have a desire to make that message of mercy known to the world around us? That's the question for us tonight. Sinclair Ferguson said that the reason the story is told in this way and it doesn't have a conclusion is is it's because it's on us to write the conclusion. It's on us to write the final paragraph. He says, for you are Jonah and I am Jonah. We recognize in ourselves the story of this man's life. We stand together in need of the mercy of God to enable us from this day on to be obedient to his commands and to live to the praise of his glorious grace. So in other words, if you've ever identified with Jonah at any point in this story, I hope that you'll identify with Jonah even in its conclusion. We are to write the final paragraph. And so what I want to do as we kind of end this series is just give, I'm going to give four specific sort of closing points of some ways that I think this applies to us. And particularly this chapter where we find ourselves in the Jonah narrative. Number one, this story tells us that God has compassion for you. I don't know how you see God, especially when it comes to seeing your own failures. I don't know if you see God as angry with you all the time, as sort of impatient with you, as writing you off because you really screwed up this time. Do you know that he has compassion for you? I watched this movie just a couple of weeks ago. It's on Netflix called Chappaquiddick. And it's a recent movie that tells the story about Ted Kennedy. It's an amazing true story about the U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy. A couple of years before he was going to make a run for president, just like his older brothers had both done. And this thing that happened, this event that really derailed his career, at least toward the presidency, is the thing that kept him from being president, most likely. When he was um, hosting a a party for a lot of his staffers off on this island, Chappaquiddick Island, near uh, Martha's Vineyard, and... um, he was driving a young staffer, I think she was a 28-year-old, named Mary Jo Kopechny. He was driving her late at night, and he had had too much to drink. And he ran off this bridge right off the island, and he got out of the car, and she didn't. Um, she drowned. And then it became a cover-up story. And this is the, the real story as it's being told. Uh, he, he sort of began to cover it up at first and, and wasn't honest with the police. And he called his dad and asked his dad for advice. And his dad was saying, don't do anything right now. Just lay low. And so they allowed her body to just be there in the car on the bottom of this water. And it's an amazing movie. It tells the story of what happened next and how sort of he somewhat recovered his career through that. But there's this scene that I want to tell you about where he goes to his dad the next day. And um, Ted decided to go to the police and give them some info. He, I don't think he gave all the info at first, but he gave them some info. And then he goes to his dad, who clearly was sort of um, a really rough father, if this is true at all, of, of the, the Kennedy dad. And he goes to his dad the next day and he says, I want to tell you what I did. And he tells him that he went to the police, even though his dad asked him not to. And his dad, Joe Kennedy, who's seated in a wheelchair at this point, he's in the final years of his life. He pulls Ted close to him with kind of a scowl on his face. And he whispers in his ear very quietly. And he says, you've lost my confidence. Do what I say. Never lose it again. Otherwise, it will be impossible for you to ever restore it. And you just see it on Ted's face, total devastation. I wonder, I wonder if some of you hear those words as the voice of God for you. You've totally lost my confidence. You see where you've bonded in your life. You see the sin that you try to cover up and you think of God pulling you close only to whisper to you. You've lost my confidence. Do it again and you will never gain it back. I think if we're honest, that is the voice perhaps of some authoritative figures in our lives. Maybe that is the voice of your father, your earthly father, or of a boss or of a professor. But let let me tell you something. That is not the voice of your heavenly father. God looks on you. If you are in Christ with a fatherly love and deep compassion for you. He loves you immensely. He knows your sin better than you do. And his son has taken it all on himself when he took on the cross. It's like we said earlier, cheer up. You're actually worse off than you think you are. But you're more loved than you can ever imagine. Luther said that the most interesting and and perhaps funniest part of this whole Jonah saga is that in the end, Jonah is still yelling at God and God's listening. Isn't that interesting? He said he's, he's talking to God as if he's a father and God is talking back as if Jonah is a son. God knows you. That's what I want you to know. God knows. God knows me and he loves you as a son or daughter because Of his son who has died so that you might live and so that you might fight against sin and so that you might participate in his mission. And that's the second thing. The second implication is this story tells us that we have a mission to participate in, too. Hopefully this is very clear now, but our mission is the same as Jonah's, as Israel's and it's a part of the church in the world today. Our mission is to make the message of God's mercy known in the world around us. So in our friendships, among our roommates, through our work, in our worship, to preach to the watching world that our God is a merciful one. He's full of grace, deeper grace. Christians are simply called to live lives that are different than the world around us. And I know that's a struggle in college. I know it's an honest struggle. But there's a sense where if you're a Christian, your life actually should look different than your neighbors who don't know him. Sanctification means you are set apart. And so we preach God's love by living out of God's love, obeying his commandments, honoring him in what we do in our relationship with others, offering forgiveness, standing up for justice, living out of grace. That's our mission in this world. So that's number 2, number 3. The third implication is this story tells us that God wants us to live life to the fullest. Later Jesus comes along and he preaches that the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. He wants to take life from you in very attractive ways. He wants to steal to kill and destroy, but Jesus says, "I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly." That's his whole goal for us is that we would be found in Christ living an abundant life. He gives us life in a way that nothing else can. And so that means we have to begin seeing that all of the things that we often run to for life can never really provide it. Ultimately, can't provide life on that deepest meaning. Even relationships, as good as they are, can't provide the deepest meaning for life. Even fun can't provide the deepest meaning. Our grades and our career will let us down at times, but Jesus comes that we may have life and life to the fullest. And sometimes God will allow us to go through something difficult in order to understand that He is truly all we need. I think of Joni Eareckson Tata, who became a quadriplegic in her teenage years from a diving accident. And she writes and speaks candidly about her own suffering, her own depression. Um, her own suicidal thoughts and doubts and fears. And she says in one place, this is a great quote. She says, when God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues that you've been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try living in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful even in trials? Am I going to abandon my sin? In short, am I going to be like Christ? She says, he provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. I think that's a very heavy quote, but she's on to something, right? God brings difficulties even into our life so that we will know him more. And I think that's the final implication. For us tonight and really the point of the Jonah story all along. And it's this. The story tells us that God may take you through something difficult in order for you to know his deeper grace. We've got to be honest. That's a very real implication of the story. Jonah's been through some difficult days, partly due to his own sin. But God may take us through something difficult in order that we may know his deeper grace. This is a message that I am totally uncomfortable with. Mm I know it's been true in my life, though. The seasons of not knowing, seniors, the seasons of not knowing, it's a hard place to be. The seasons of experiencing real loss, the experience of seeing how my sin affects others. Sometimes God allows us to go through difficult seasons so that we might understand his grace more deeply. And some of you know that to be so true. I know many of your stories. I know the things that God has taken you through. Um, And I have a ton of respect for so many of you. The tremendous pain that you've lived through. The chronic suffering, illnesses, deep loss, heartbreak, panic attacks, getting caught, rejection, addiction, times of not knowing. And I do want to speak to seniors because I love y'all. I know that there is like a group freakout thing going on right now, right? For those who are trying to kind of figure it all out. Could it be, could it be that God has you exactly where he wants you? Could it be that he is so kind to you to call you to wait and to look to him in your waiting? He has you right where he wants you. So that you might understand his deeper grace for you in this season. That he might actually be, to quote Newton, crossing all your fair designs you've schemed. It's a great quote, isn't it? Cross all the fair designs I've schemed so that you may find your all in him. I end with a story. It's the story behind maybe one of the most famous photographs in all of history. Uh, have you ever heard of the The napalm girl. This is a photograph that really kind of captured the heart and the terror of the Vietnam War. In 1972, after a napalm bomb was dropped in the middle of the village of Trang Bang, there's this photo taken. And in the background of the photo, you've most likely seen this. It's literally one of the most famous photographs in the last 50 years. In the background of the photo is um, smoke everywhere, just kind of this cloud from the bomb. And then sort of in front of that are some soldiers who are walking with guns in their hands, pointed toward the kids that are in the forefront, the foreground of the photo. And it's these, I think there's five kids, all maybe 10 and under. And right in the center of the photo is this one girl who became known as the napalm girl. She's nine years old, and she is, um, she's covered, we don't see it, but she's covered in the explosives. And she's naked because she's been running and her head and her neck and her back and her arms have been scalded and she's been really injured. She's not at the time screaming in agony. And this picture really began to be circulated widely across the world. It won a Pulitzer Prize, sort of encapsulating in a picture of the horror and the devastation of the war. But there's something so interesting I've learned about this girl in the picture, the napalm girl. She survived. And after she lived in the hospital for over a year after this was taken, she had nearly 20 surgeries. Um, she survived. And she grew up. Her name is Kim Phan. And she actually became really religious after this. Really interesting to read her story. She turned all sorts of religions As many as she could find to try to figure out and and sort of bring meaning to all the things that she had been through, the suffering that she had experienced. Uh, She later admitted that she just felt so empty. She felt no peace or joy after all of her searching. She tried to make sense of all of this. And then it was through a family member that Fan uh, visited a Christian church. And at one point she was handed a Bible and she began to read about this God of the scriptures And she learned about a God who met people in their suffering, who even loved broken people like her, with broken stories. About a Jesus who drew near to the weak, and she was converted. She became a Christian, and she said that for the first time she found peace and joy and security. And for the first time she didn't just want to die. So then she became, as she continued to grow up, she became this renowned speaker and still speaks all over the world. She lives in Canada. She travels all over the world telling her story. She actually went to Washington, D.C., and told her story on the anniversary, one of the anniversaries of the Vietnam War, and she spoke to, get it, her enemies who dropped the bomb about forgiveness from a Christian perspective. It's amazing. In her book, I want to read you a quote. She recounts how people at her talks will come up to her. When they learn who she is and they learn that she was the girl from this famous photograph and they'll say, we prayed for you. We prayed for you. And she tells them, those bombs led me to Christ. I think that's one of the most amazing sentences I've ever heard in my life. For this woman now in her 50s to look back at her childhood and say, those bombs led me to Christ. Now, I don't know how to make sense of that in my mind, but I know she's right. Here's what she says in her book. She says she looks at the pictures now and she cries over that little girl. She says she cries tears of joy as she thinks about God's plan for that little girl. She writes, I look back at that picture, how ugly I was. I was naked. I was in agony. I was so hopeless, crying out. What would happen? Why would this happen to a child? But then she turns this into a prayer in her book and she says, Lord, you allowed that to happen to me. In the middle of that, you were there and you saved me. It changed my life completely, turning darkness into light. Hatred to forgiveness from joy, from sorrow to joy and from hopelessness to hope. Here's where I want to leave you with as we end this series. I don't know what the story is, but I do know, do know that God is writing a story in your life right now. And it's a story that moves from darkness to life, from sorrow to joy, from hopelessness to hope. And God may take you and he may be taking you right now through a very difficult season. He invites you to sit, to listen, to watch Him at work, to believe that he is writing a narrative for your good and for his glory, and then to preach that message to anyone who will listen. That's your invitation tonight, the question for you. How will you respond to God's grace? Let me pray for us.